the darker side of human nature is equal parts fascinating and terrifying. Morality is rarely as black and white as the heroic tales that introduced many of us to fantasy, which is probably why the grimdark genre is so popular among its fans. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Anna Smith-Spark, author of the Empires of Dust trilogy and the Queen of Grimdark herself. The House of Sacrifice is her most recent book and concludes her debut epic fantasy trilogy. Anna and I talk about shoes, the meaning of Grimdark, and the philosophy behind our fascination with violence. Let's see what she had to say. Anna Smith-Spark, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, it's lovely to be here. I love the Fantasy Inn's great. I, I, love, I love your website and your, your work. Oh, well, we appreciate that. Uh, we're big fans of your books, so oh. the feeling's mutual. <laughs> Didn't you guys win a Stabby? Am I making that up? Did you just win a Stabby? Yes, we did. We actually, uh, we won a... Yeah, we won the Stabby for Best Site and the Stabby for uh, Best Audio Original. Hey, fantastic. Yeah, so uh, we're excited to play with knives. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so I, I think actually before I even heard about your books, uh, I first heard about you through Twitter uh, and I saw some incredible shoes. Uh, so <laughs> how did you... So how did you acquire such a great collection of shoes? Uh, what got you into that? Do you have a favorite pair? Oh, goodness. Um, I've always worn really absurd shoes since um, since I first started being able to buy my own shoes. Um, when I was in my teens, I used to, I've always worn really mad shoes. I just love them. They're just, um, I mean, they're not, my shoes are not as uncomfortable as everyone thinks. They're not that bad. The ones without heels are actually not at all as uncomfortable. And then people look at me blankly and I'm like, well, obviously I don't mean like, you know, I'd run a marathon in them or I don't <laughs> like chill out on a Friday night under a blanket watching television wearing them, but they are not as uncomfortable as they look as, and they are just so cool. They're just fantastic. It's just, um, I've just always loved shoes. Now I spent ages looking on the internet and going in there, a couple of shop, really cool shops in London um, yeah, I mean, I got one pair, my favourite pair, probably the pair with the dragon in, if people have seen those. They're just a pair of silver heels, and they've got this huge silver dragon on the front of each shoe. And I had to get those imported from America. And actually, they got they got held up in customs for about two weeks because you could kind of – I could just imagine the people in customs in the UK, they kind of they came into the airport and they sort of put this box through the X-ray machine and they're sort of looking at it like, it's their <laughs> shoes on the shipping notice, <laughs> but with X-ray <laughs> And whatever it is, it is not shoes. Surely that's some kind of smuggling conspiracy. Yeah, like kind of. This is yeah, this is just not shoes. There must be something going on here. But yeah, no, these are amazing. They, um, you, I can't walk upstairs in them. I have to walk upstairs sideways or get the lift. But they're just amazing. I mean, they're just dragons. They're Marath's two dragons on my shoes. That's that's incredible. Dragons in general are amazing, and to have yeah. them like actually kind of represent something from your book is even better yeah no that yeah that was really just yeah that were really cool when I got them it's like hey I've just um I've got another pair of shoes which got um they're not particularly grim dark at all they've got a little pink bird in a gold cage on the heel 
and I bought them just after I'd written the scene in the House of Sacrifice. There's just a little, little tiny detail where Bill is in the temple and there's a bird in a cage that's been left as, a, that's, as an offering and the bird speaks and it says something, it tells them the future, but they don't understand it because it's speaking in a Cyrillic and they don't understand Cyrillic. And then a week later, I saw these shoes, which are a little songbird in a gilded cage as heels. And it was just like, oh, I have to buy these because um, they are that little scene in the book that kind of, that was just completely ripped off. Um, I think it's Yeats's Byzantium, the stuff about birds. It's just kind of birds in cages, little songbirds in cages singing is such a thing from, oh, it was that fairy tale about the nightingale, the mechanical nightingale. That's where I got it from. So I put it in the book and then I saw the shoes and I have the shoes. So yes, <laughs> it's really cool having stuff that yeah, kind of means something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's really cool. And I guess maybe a little bit grimdark at the same time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a militant vegan would get very upset with me. That should be cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, one question I always like to ask people uh, at the beginning uh, how did you first fall in love with the fantasy genre and when did you decide you wanted to become a writer? Oh, both are just always. So um, I think I've sort of, people might know if they've read any interviews with me before. My dad is a poet and he's been writing poetry all his life and he's he, he loves fantasy as well. He, um, he, he sort of confessed things like he read The Lord of the Rings when he was a teenager and he invented his own language and drew the maps. We've still got his copies. Of, he's got still got these copies of Lord of the Rings. He got given as a school prize when he was uh, for sort of doing particularly well at his year, in his year. And they've got this little plaque with his name on inside the original copies, the original first edition with the maps. Um, but, yeah, so I just kind of grew up with it. I just sort of I have really mem- early memories of stuff like getting one of the books we used to get out of the library a lot when I was really tiny is this book called The Island of the Mighty, which was especially a really beautiful children's version of Mabinogion. And I really, really vividly remember a book I still have called Axe Age, Wolf Age, which is Kevin Cressley Holland's retelling of the whole Norse myths from the creation of the world to Ragnarok. And it's got these beautiful woodcut illustrations. And I just kind of grew up. I remember my dad reading these books when I was really little. And then he read me stuff like um, The Weird Stone of Bristing Garmin and The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And in fact, he read me The Lord of the Rings so beautifully that we got to the bit when, when they're in the mines of Moria and they're reading the diary entries about we cannot get out, we cannot get out. I mean, my brother both started to scream and my dad had to stop reading for a week because we were too frightened. <laughs> um, so I just grew up with fantasy and with poetry and with mythology. And I've always wanted to be a writer because my dad and a lot of his friends were writers. I just grew up surrounded by people who were writers and surrounded by fantasy and mythology and just kind of, I never didn't want, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I just received, oh my goodness, I just shot my email down, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're I'm sorry. <laughs> Everyone, that was me getting an email. <laughs> um, yes, so I, yeah, so I just grew up surrounded by mythology and fantasy and poetry and always wanted to write. I've got all these kind of little, I've got all these notebooks where I was trying to write while I was writing stuff when I was a child and making all these stories and telling myself stories. I didn't used to play with other children much. I used to kind of walk around. Playtimes were spent with me sort of walking around on my own telling myself stories. 
And actually, I look back now and all the people, the stories I was telling, because they're all based in mythology and based on fantasy, children's fantasy stories, the kind of the Marith and Thalia were always actually the central characters. I thought a lot of those stories I was telling myself and a lot of the themes and the plots actually kind of ended up working their way out a bit in The Empire of Dust and some of the images. Like the, I was just saying about the birds, so I remember reading things like, it's a, I think it's a lovely, it's a fairy tale with an emperor who listens, he has a smiting bell that sings outside his window every night. And then someone makes in this mechanical bird in a golden cage, that's all sort of diamond studied and beautiful. And of course, because it's a music box and it sings more beautifully. But then of course, because it's a music box, it stops working. And he realises that the, the real nightingale, even though it's this little grey bird, is much more beautiful and much more precious. And I just remember things like that always when they all come out in the stories. It's sort of, it's just everything that I've, it's all the things I really love. It's everything I've ever loved. Fantasy and mythology are really what I love the most. You say that about that fairy tale, and I actually have this really vivid memory of reading that when I was younger as well. I think I used to have a book of fairy tales, and that was one of the ones that I remember from it. Yeah, I know. It's such a beautiful, beautiful sad little image there's so much there's all sorts of stuff and there's there's isn't is it yates is byzantium there's stuff about a gold there's stuff about a silver vine with little mechanical jewel birds and some reason things like that I've just oh i've just remembered them since i was young and they're just such beautiful strange images and they just stay with you anyway i'm rambling totally but yeah no um i have always loved fantasy and i've always wanted to write well then how how did you go from a love of fantasy and wanting to write to uh actually writing and then being picked up for publication? Oh, now this is my very dark and very sad but fundamentally inspiring story. Um, so, yeah, I always used to write, and I wrote, I wrote huge amounts when I was a child and a teenager, and I told myself these stories all the time. And then I stopped writing completely when I was in my late teens, early 20s. I um, had a really awful time. I was in a horribly abusive relationship. And I just stopped writing. I just lost any confidence in the idea that I could write anything, that anything I wrote was worth anything. Um, I just sort of gave up completely. It was really quite painful to me, the idea that, you know, all I wanted to do was write, but it just felt absolutely an impossible dream. It felt like the idea that I could write a book felt like, you know, saying that it felt like, I knew when I was a child I wanted to be a writer, but it kind of seemed like, you know, children who say things like they want to be a superhero or they want to be an astronaut and things, you're just like, you're probably not going to manage that as your life ambition, you know. Being Superman is probably not yeah. a terribly good life. <laughs> probably Maybe not. a career path, wanting to be a member of the Avengers. Um, and that felt the same for me for writing. It just felt like absolutely absurd to think that I could ever write a book. Um, and this went on for years. And I think actually having my diagnosis as Asperger's syndrome had some huge impact on me that I didn't really realise because shortly after that, I just started writing. I sat down one day and had this really clear image of a scene in a desert and people, men, fighting something, violence, and this sort of desert environment. And I started writing, 
and then I wrote the um, the line, the dragon was upon them before they even had a chance to draw their swords. And it was like, oh my goodness, I appear to be writing a fancy book. And a year later, I had written the first draft of The Court of Broken Knives, which then got picked up very, very quickly by my agent in Drury, who was amazing, and was then published as sort of sold as I was writing. I had to write two more books to write a trilogy, a sort of big, grimdark, epic fantasy trilogy. So it was um, it was something of a roller coaster two years, really. It was completely insane. That it, it sounds through. insane. And were you planning a trilogy from the beginning, or? Um, so I kind of, when I was writing The Course of Broken Knives, because I didn't even really think I was writing a book, I was just sort of writing. It wasn't like I sort of, it wasn't like I sort of planned out anything, hadn't done any world building, hadn't done any planning, I had no idea what was happening. I was just writing this thing fairly compulsively. I'd sit up every night after work writing it, and I'd just sort of be like sort of almost every spare moment I had writing it and thinking it. I was just living in this other world writing this book. And it wasn't until I'd got quite close to finishing it, I began to sort of feel like, my goodness, this is really, you know, this feels, you just kind of know, you just, you know, there's moments in your life when you know something is really good and worth doing. And it kind of felt like, oh my goodness, I mean, maybe I should look for an agent for this. Maybe I could do something with this. And it wasn't until that point, I really kind of understood what the story was about who the characters I was writing were. I didn't have a clue who any of them were when I started writing it or what they, what was going on. All of it was as much a surprise to me as it was to the, char- to the characters themselves. And their se- the secrets they were keeping from each other and what was going to happen to them was all a huge surprise to me. But then at the same time, as soon as I was coming up to finishing it, I kind of also knew where the whole story was going. I didn't know where a lot of book two was what was going to happen, a lot of what was going to happen in book two. But I knew where the whole thing was going to end up and what everyone's ultimate destiny was and what the ending was and that it was a trilogy telling that, telling that particular story. Actually, um, Peter Newman has this lovely description of you're standing on a mountaintop at the beginning and the end is another mountaintop and you know exactly where you need to go. It's just slightly unclear. You, know, you need to go down the mountain, carry on up the other mountain. It's just slightly unclear what you're going to find on the way, what the landscape is on the way. But you know exactly where you're going and how to get there. And it was just like that for me. But suddenly this discovery that actually I was writing a trilogy, and of course it's a trilogy because all classic fantasy is trilogies. It's such a classic thing in, tri- in fantasy. Yeah. It was a trilogy. And I knew where it was going, but at the same time it was still this kind of discovery and yeah, and then obviously I had to do kind of a synopsis and things for books two and three as part of the, not to get the agent, but to sort of do, to get obviously to be then sent off to the pub to publishers. So I had to sort of knock up in about half an hour, a vague kind of outline of what would happen in books two and three, which no one ever expects you to really keep to unless you go completely off the wall and have a, <laughs> a, a dream <laughs> At which point your editor can kind of point out, well, no, I think you'll find the thing you sold that we bought clearly does not say, and then it was all a dream. Um, but, yeah, so it was this kind of – but I just kind of knew. I kind of knew what the story was about, even though I hadn't planned it. I wasn't planning it at all. It was kind of like it was there already. I've said before, it was kind of like it was all there in my head. I just had to find it. And then so then once I found it, it was just there. 
um, it kind of really did feel like it was sort of, I don't know, like, like I had found my way through to another to another world. Like this is my portal into another world, and I was just telling their story or something. I kind of right. I kind of kind of believe that that's actually my real life. The world in the books is like my real life. Actually, it's it's actually just a kind of factual history of my actual reality rather than this incredibly ghastly nightmare delusion that I'm trapped in at the moment. And one day I'll find a way back again properly. Yeah, as a as grim dark as your books are, sometimes the world seems a little too grim dark. <laughs> yeah, well, my books are very grim dark, but they're also incredibly romantic. I mean, that's that's why I love fantasy. It's that wonder of a world that's so much more interesting and beautiful and strange and magical and just technicolor in a way that we're just not letting it be anymore. That kind of, you know, I'm really quite interested in the whole notion of disenchantment of the world, the world, you know, the world was a much stranger place, more beautiful place. And we've, we've managed to kind of just make it so, you know, everything, what that ghastly quote, everything that can be, everything that has value can be measured and everything that can be measured has value. We've reduced a kind of vast, amazing, magical, you know, we're alive and the world is so incredibly beautiful and weird and inexplicable and terrible. And we've reduced it to, well, if you can measure it, it has value. And if it has value, you can measure it. And fantasy for me, yeah, my world is dark, but it's not boring dark. It's not penny-pinching little, it's all just about money. It's all just about quantifying things. It's all just about doing a zero-hours contract job and grinding out and living your best life and doing stuff because it has health benefits and it might reduce your insurance premiums and all of that. It's... Yep, that all that all hits close to home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you read fancy, you can just briefly, you can just escape that. You can just briefly live in a world that's just, it is like going from watching black and white television to having color television. It's just, the world is just so much bigger and so much more wonderful and so much more beautiful and so much more terrifying. And yeah, that's why I write fancy. That's why I love fancy. Yeah, and that, I like what you say about escapism there, too, because it seems like a lot of times when people throw out the word escapism, maybe if they're not fantasy fans, they're like, oh, you just want to, you know, get away from the real world and play make-believe or something. But it's like, man, the fantasy worlds are just so vivid and detailed and intense sometimes compared to, you know, the boring day-to-day of real life. Like, even if it's dark, right? Yeah, no, I think that's kind of this whole notion that because it's this because you're trying to escape the confines of the little room you live in, that somehow that's bad. I mean, art and dream art and poetry and beautiful things are an absolute intrinsic part of humanity. You know, look at cave art. What are people doing? They're working out, hey, look, we can draw these weird things. They're not drawing. They're not writing up instruction manuals for kind of they're not doing the kind of equivalent of PowerPoint presentation how to optimize big game hunting skills. They're drawing weird pictures of people with animal heads. They're creating stuff. They're creating things that's weird and beautiful and escaping it and doing making escapism. That's what people 
that's what people do. That's how. That's what makes the human mind so kind of rich and means that we've achieved everything for good and for bad that we've ever achieved is because we're escaping and being creative and dreaming, daydreaming about stuff. That, and that's what fantasy is. I mean, actually, I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago. There was a thing. Um, it was when the, I think it was Mr. Galance's widow, I think it was, died. So that's Galance as in the publishers Galance who publish Okay. One of the one of the biggest British imprinters of science fiction and fantasy, and they do the Glance Masterworks, and um, and they used to be it was a quite prestigious British publishing house, and it has now it only now publishes science fiction and fantasy. So one of the big London-based publishing magazines did an obituary for I'm pretty sure it was Mr. Glance, it was Victor Glance's widow kind of saying the tragedy that this noble publishing house that published Orwell, who obviously is not in any way expected a fiction writer, and who, because um, obviously Animal Farm is completely realist. Um, as oh, it's completely. Not, oh, completely, yes. Um, he published, you know, all these authors is now only publishing genre fiction. And so, you know, Glance understandably got rather upset and put out a press release kind of pointing out, you know, the political importance of a lot of people they published. You know, they published Ursula Le Guin, they publish, you know, they publish lots of people about, you can say many things about that they're writing incredibly progressive, important political stuff. It just happens to have also had dragons and small spaceships in it, which was kind of, okay, you know, cool. Obviously, you know, they were saying science fiction and fantasy is a great deal of value because it can, you can use it to comment on your own political system and you can use it as an allegory for things and you can talk about things like, you know, you can talk about things like gender and gender priority and stuff very easily when you're talking about people, you know, alien races or things. And that was all great. But then I wrote a blog post kind of saying, well, yeah, that's all wonderful. You can say science fiction and fantasy have this huge allegorical purpose and can really comment on our political systems and things, blah, blah, blah. But you can also just say they create wonderful things and they're about beauty and wonder and looking at a tree on your commute, looking out of your train window on your commute in the morning, in a ridiculously early hour of the morning, as I do, and seeing a tree. And I see the tree in the Lord of the Rings, the, the tree that blossoms at, in the Return of the King. I see some of the stuff I've written myself about May trees and bloss, tree blossom and how that, you know, I've written a lot of stuff about how that means a lot to Merith. I see the tree in the um, the Dark is Rising tree, that's a series where there's stuff about silver on the tree. And I see all of those things when I look at that tree on the way to work. And that, you know, that means something to me. The world, is, I see, see beautiful things. And that just seems to me intrinsically incredibly valuable and important rather than someone who would say, well, that tree cannot be measured, therefore it does not have value because only things that can be measured have value. And you see that tree and you see, well, I could build a rock of flats on that land or I could cut that tree up and sell it for firewood or, you know, I don't just see the world in terms of money. I see it in terms of stories and poems. And that to me just has a huge amount of intrinsic value, that escaping into dreams and not just thinking about how can I make some more cash out of this? So, yeah, yeah I, I agree entirely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're completely ignoring all your questions, sorry, but... Oh, that's fine. The questions are a guideline in general. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, we, we've kind of talked about uh, 
the darkness and the beauty and the romanticism kind of in your works. But, you know, people typically describe the Empires of Dust series as, oh, it's grimdark. Uh, so out of curiosity, uh, how do you personally define grimdark? Oh, goodness. Um, I know there are quite, there's a lot of discussion about this. I've written about this at length in a couple of places. Um, so to me, I mean, my really flippant answer sometimes is that heroic fantasy in particular seems to be one of the few genres in recent years in which, hey, sometimes bad shit happens and there isn't a happy ending, seems to come as some amazingly controversial position to take. So crime <laughs> novels kind of seem to be kind of okay with the idea that sometimes bad stuff happens and sometimes the baddie gets away with it. Um, and sometimes good people do bad things and sometimes bad people do good things. Historical fiction, for fairly obvious reasons, has to face up to the fact that often the good guys don't win and often it's all a bit more complicated than just the good using the baddies. But in recent years, it seems to have become quite difficult for some parts of kind of heroic and epic fantasy to really cope with that. And Grimdark, I think, actually is make is I think cynicism is a lot of what the point of Grimdark is, or even nihilism. And I've kind of written in defense of nihilism, in fact, that um that kind of not believing all's for the best and the best possible, best of all possible worlds and all end well, and all you have to do is be on the side of right and everything will be fine and what you've done will be righteous. I think that's incredibly important. I think Grimdark is, that's what Grimdark talks about. It takes these absolutely extreme positions of power and violence. It kind of really ramps, it sort of takes political situations like the leader who, to use an entirely abstract and in no way in any relation to any kind of reality that's happening in the moment position, to take a leader who commits something, who... Um, basically breaks all international law and commits assassinate and assassinates someone and just kind of says, well, you know, I'm right, they're wrong, they've done bad things, we are good people, therefore they deserve to die. And, yeah, it was great, and we're going to tell everyone that we killed this person and how great that was. And Grimdark takes that kind of scenario and really, really, really takes it to its extreme and kind of points to the realities about that. Grimdark points the realities of war and violence in fantasy and again can use kind of the absurd the fact that this is fantasy so you can have people you can sort of blow up fantasy violence in ways that you can't in realistic portrayals of violence you can just go completely over the top with violence and it kind of uses that to point out the reality of things of what violence actually means you know that kind of it's very easy in traditional heroic fantasy to have, you know, if your enemies are orcs, your enemies aren't even human. The idea that orcs might have a family life, a cultural life, might have anything about them that's worth thinking about as actually as them as sentient beings is just fairly difficult. What the kind of great mystery in Tolkien is what on earth, on what on earth the orcs are doing the rest of the time it's just, you know, you don't need to think about that. It's so easy just to kind of say, you just kill them all. They are just bad and you just kill them all. And Grimdark kind of takes that and really makes, asks you kind of, 
yeah, well, what does that mean? What do you really think that means? What is it really? So for me, it's not it's not just violence. People often sort of say, oh, well, look, my book has got, you know, you get these weird kind of people saying, look, my book's got loads and loads of violence and loads of sexual violence and loads of blah, blah, blah. So it must be grimdark. But for me, it's that political element that actually that you're kind of reveling in violence because actually fundamentally most people do revel in violence. People enjoy a good punch-up. People find it exciting to read or to watch or to take part in. And you're pointing that out, but also pointing out the reality of it and what it might actually mean and making you try and trying to ask questions like, well, how would it feel if you were one of the Orcs? Or how would it feel to realise that you were one of the Orcs? Or how would it feel to realise after you killed all the Orcs that actually they weren't Orcs at all, they were people? And it's making you think about that and ask those questions, but also pointing out that you're enjoying it, that you are enjoying reading this absurdly violent scene. You know, and the way you describe it too, the heroic fantasy situations you're laying out sound way more dark and terrifying <laughs> than like the grimdark approach. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, um, so many times in history, people have just been told, you know, you are, we are the chosen people. We are good. We are great. We are, we are, there's something special about us. We're better than everyone else. God has chosen us. And that other lot over there are just, you know, inhuman, weird. They have worshipped this weird God who's a bad God and wants them to do bad things. And they kill babies and they eat babies and they have weird deviant sex. And they're just, and the best thing we can possibly do is kill them all before they kill us. And, um, yeah, I mean, that has, obviously that has happened before now many times yep. and tends not to end very well for anyone. Um, and fantasy, it's just so, you know, on the one hand, the idea of a leader who is going to point out, you know, who is going to promise they will make the world better and has a platform and a vision for making the world a better place and making people think about good and, you know, making people think about good and about caring for each other and about caring for the world around them. That kind of, you know, that sort of Messiah, you know, Jesus in the New Testament, obviously one would sign up to that. That's amazing, you know. And yet at the same time, one should always be questioning what that actually means, that that notion of, we are right and we will fight to make the world a better place. It is wonderful and inspiring and also absolutely terrifying because one can never know, is one right? Is one fighting to make the world a better place? If you read, say, colonial accounts of Europeans in Africa, they are not saying we are going to impress so and so come into this country where, you know, the British in Africa, we had 19th century weapons technology against people who did not have guns, did not have, you know, but we didn't come saying, hey, we're going to kill you all. People came with deeply complicated ideas about the superiority of European culture and the superiority of the Bible. And really, some of them seemed to really deeply believe that what they were doing in Africa was wonderful. Even, you know, he read justifications for plantation slavery. 
it's not being it's being told it's not actually all about hey i'm going to enslave these people to make money it's about hey i'm going to enslave these people because then i will give them because you know it will make them better people in some complicated way and grimdark really asks those questions it makes you really think about kind of what it is you what it is that one is doing what what good is what evil is what violence means what what when we say things like it's something this thing is worth fighting for what does that actually mean Heroic fantasy is just so easy. It's just such a kind of, it's a wonderfully romantic vision. It's a, but it's that kind of point, you know, I was listening to, there's a wonderful Leonard Cohen song about the partisan song about a, um, you know, Matt, it's the, it's a partisan in World War II. I think it's originally from Poland. You know, they, there's these sort of lines about, you know, they've, he, he's lost his wife and children. He's no idea what's happened to them. He's never going to notice, he's never going to see them again this awful line there were three of us this morning and the only one left this only one left this evening but i must go on and of course you know in the context of the second world war in central europe that this guy is on the side of the angels you know he's he's fighting nazism and the song is being sung obviously by a man a jewish man it's a profoundly you know profoundly inspiring song and yet you turn it around and that terrifying you know, he's abandoned his wife, he's abandoned his children, he has no idea whether they're alive or not, he doesn't think he'll ever see them again. To his, he had, There were two friends of his left this morning, now they're both dead, but still he's going to go on. He knows he'll die, but he's going to go on. That's terrifying. That is absolutely kind of terrifying fetishization of death and destruction, you know, all he's killing people until he dies. It's It's so complicated. And that, that's what Grimdark Fantasy for me is about. It's about taking that and really, really taking it apart. But using dragons <laughs> and castles and magic swords to possibly make it slightly less bleak and slightly more bearable. More bearable, less bleak, and uh, just generally more <laughs> exciting for fantasy fans. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, so what... Uh, it sounds like I'm guessing you've probably gravitated towards reading some stories that kind of reflect that grim darkness. Uh, so if so, uh, what are some of your favorite examples of the grim dark genre? Oh, goodness. Um, Mike Fletcher. So Mike Fletcher's books, Michael R. Fletcher, Beyond Redemption, uh, The Mirror's Truth, Swarm and Steel. And then he's got a new series, starting a new series. Uh, called City of uh, the series is called City of Sacrifice, which I am told by Mike has got absolutely the, the, that title that series title has had no, in no way in any way influenced by the titles of my own books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wrote um, yeah, I wrote an introduction for a collection of short stories that Mike did called um, a collection of obsessions. So Swarm and Steel in particular, Mike's world of man, the manifest illusions world, essentially people's delusions become real so if so you're kind of all your kind of neuroses everyone's neuroses and deep unhappiness about themselves and fixations and fears or kind of delusions and bravado and bragito they all come true so one i mean he's just basically He's just predicted Trump and Boris Johnson. It's kind of <laughs> that kind of if you believe it, it will some you know, you believe you're amazing, you believe you're king of the world, somehow you will end up king of the world. Um 
But it's just, you know, the sheer level of cynicism and absolute self-awareness, ruthless self-awareness about that we are all just writhing bundles of neuroses and unhappiness comparing and obsessively comparing each other to others. And we have very few moments of not constantly, or we shouldn't have, we should have very few moments of actually not interrogating us, our own behaviours. It's all, but they're also, you know, they're incredibly human books, they're incredibly romantic books. They're about real people with real neuroses trying to do the best they can, doing terrible things, but also caring deeply about each other, loving each other. There are people in it who are very bad, but they are almost, you can you can see, you can't understand, you may not be able to sympathise with them, but you can understand why they're doing what they're doing. And you can feel compassion for them. Or you can feel anger and frustration at what they're doing, but know why they're doing it in the same way, you know, if you have, we've all seen within our own family and friends, you feel so much anger and frustration at someone doing something really stupid. But you can kind of, you don't just, they're not just, you know, none of his characters are those kind of moustache twirling evil for the sake of evil people. They're complicated. They're just complicated right, real right. people trying to do stuff. And the books are just, you know, they're, they're also incredibly funny. They're just an absolute blast to read. They're so, they are such bad taste. They're like the most hilarious, bad taste <laughs> horror, sort of comedy horror films, but with this really profound stuff about, political stuff about, about what we all are and the way we live our lives in relation to each other. I, I adore Mike Fletcher's books. I think they're amazing. And also the other a book, which is it's never discussed as Grimdark, and it's not Grimdark, it's, um, but... Uh, the Viriconium series, the Viriconium series of books by John M. Harrison, which is kind of his response to Tolkien. Huh, I have not heard of that series. Very few people have. It's a Galantz Masterworks. I'm not even sure if it's published in America. It's a very strange series. It's not, it kind of, it's this, some of the sort of novellas and short stories as part of, part of it is a, are very, very strange. And it in kind of, it has a sort of self-awareness by the Lera. If you read it as a whole novel, all the sorts, all the stories are collected together as one novel. It kind of ends with actually a kind of semi-autobiographical first-person accounts of the author in Britain in the seventies, trying to get to Viriconium as his dream city. But there's really complicated stuff going on about kind of why they're doing what they're doing and what heroic fantasy is about. And there's this, it's sort of the central character is very, very self-aware and very critical about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it on this sort of traditional heroic fantasy quest in a traditional heroic fantasy setting and the kind of sadness around it. It's a bit like, in some ways, it's a bit like the Book of the New Sun in that kind of strange, very sad world with a kind of strange awareness of how how strange and sad and painful this all is. Yeah, that that sounds like an interesting series. I'll have to look and see if there is a way I can get it in the States. Yeah, no, do. It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly beautifully written. He's an astonishing... His, his prose is just absolutely sublimely beautiful. He was... He was a big influence on me, and yeah, no, his prose is very, very, very beautiful. It's definitely kind of literary fantasy and very strange, but it's just, yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah, well, what about, are there any books that you wish you could kind of just give it more of a grimdark twist to it? Like, maybe not 
you know, your own work or something like that, but just something you read where you're like, man, this could have been improved if it was just a little bit more grimdark. Ooh, um, I don't know really, because I, maybe not actually, no, because I, I try and I tend to take books very much as they are, if you see what I mean. I mean, um, and also making some things darker, it kind of, so, I mean, actually, the classic example, thinking about it, is Star Wars. So we've been watching the original three. We watched the original three again. And then um, my son actually got given the prequels for Christmas, which was very nice of someone. He was able to watch them. We had to sit through the entire of um, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> and then you get <laughs> my desperate, pathetic attempts to sort of try and explain that Jar Jar Binks is a truly abhorrent character without yeah. then having to explain to a small child why Jar Jar Binks is a truly abundant character, which was um, really quite painful. Um, Yeah, yeah, so we got to obviously get to um, Revenge of the Sith, which is very, very dark. And I had forgotten just how cool Anakin Skywalker's descent into darkness is, and it's really cool. But you're like, this just totally ruined Star Wars because Star Wars is just this fantastic, exciting romp through space with just these really clear good and evil you know it is a really simple storyline and you kind of buggered it up I don't want Darth Vader to be dark and tormented and regret everything he's done and I just want to be striding around being cool it's that kind of if you start the kind of when things or there's those new recent Star Trek reboots that made them dark and I was like no 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 leave the start leave it alone things are what they are there are lots of books I love which are not dark in the slightest. I really enjoyed, um, I really, really enjoyed Melissa Caruso's the, um, the Tethered Mage, which is this lovely YA-ish sort of just beautiful Renaissance Venice fantasy world. It's Renaissance Venice with fire mages, basically. I mean, how cool is that? It does, and it's yeah. not dark. It's just gorgeous. There's lots of stuff about her beautiful clothes and this beautiful city and fundamentally everyone's pretty decent and it's just it's just gorgeous and obviously there's a lot of stuff I could tell a story like that and make it a lot darker but it's it's just gorgeous as a kind of light enjoyable thing I read a lot of historical novels as well and there's the difference between the kind of very dark complicated Hilary Mantelish really kind of getting inside some people who are not entirely happy people and doing and involved in kind of high politics and doing really awful things. And then there's kind of lovely bodice ripper light romp stuff, which is just so enjoyable just to be, again, just wallowing in this lovely light world of, hey, the most important, you know, the worst thing that possibly happen is your dress isn't quite as nice as someone else's dress. And the chap you're in a love triangle with kind of ignores you for the other woman for the night. And that's fine because it's just, we all need different books and different genres and different styles and different moods to be in yeah and we all all need them at different times i think you nailed it with uh, the different moods because sometimes i'm in the mood for something that's a thousand pages long and dense as a brick and really like gritty and sometimes i just want to be able to uh relax and kind of escape from a particularly rough week at work or something Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, there are books you kind of feel, particularly with historical novels, when they take 
a rather kind of uncritical view of there's the kind of redemptionist view, you know, the kind of revisionist view. A lot of historical novels take a character like Richard III and try and talk about them as much more sympathetically and more complicatedly, which is fine. And then there's a very kind of simplistic novels which take kind of, you know, a a chap who say, you know, someone like William Marshall, who was one of the kind of great great knights of medieval Europe and therefore um, as a great knight of medieval Europe during the Crusades period. I mean, um, yeah, you could write a very traditional heroic historical fantasy about a historical novel about a chap striding out to kill the heretics um, and liberate cities and things and save the women. But that is obviously um, somewhat problematic. So, yeah, you know, there were historical novels I've read where I just thought, God, you've just totally, you know, you've just totally kind of missed any kind of context for and made this person a hero. And, okay, so at the time they were seen as a hero, but the things they did in our cultural context and with any kind of wider context of humanity are absolutely horrifying. So, yeah, there are a lot of historical novels, actually. I think, God, you could, what are you doing? But fancy not so much, actually. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about a lot of great other books, uh, and we've kind of mentioned yours, uh, but I guess it's probably past time that we dive into that a little bit. Uh, so your Empires of Dust trilogy just concluded last summer. Um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about this series? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, it is, yeah, it is extremely violent, extremely cynical, also in very, very kind of poetically, lyrically written, which some people have found very difficult. And, yeah, I mean, I, I've said to people, you know, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. It's... It's quite a Marmite book. Some people absolutely love it. Some people absolutely hate it, which is fine. Um, and kind of kind of what I want. Um, it is quite a complex fantasy. It's quite. A, it's a very, very simple story, actually. It's, um, it's the hero's journey, essentially, over three books. But kind of my take on the hero's journey, it's... I think I described it the other day as both a love letter to heroic fantasy and critique of heroic fantasy for all the reasons I've been talking about earlier. And it it contains everything I've ever loved and valued about fantasy and about mythology and about landscape writing. There's a lot of landscape writing. There's a lot of descriptions of the rain. I really I've realized there are a lot of descriptions of the rain and the snow. And there's a lot of landscape description. It is kind of fantasy in it's quite old school, actually, and it's kind of, I think one of your questions is that it's not got this kind of, you know, it's not about the plot. Right. Which isn't, it's not kind of character-driven or action-driven. It's not that kind of, what's the big, what's the next big reveal? What's the kind of mystery? It's not a kind of, it's not a thriller. It's ideas more kind of literary fantasy creating a world and letting you kind of, creating a world and then telling the story of one person within that world. So, yeah, but yeah, basically it's the story of a young man called Marith and his hero's journey and the people he meets on his journey and how, and they, and how they interact with him. Um, yeah. And it, it begin, the whole series begins with a three page, virtually punctuation. Well, no, not quite, but punctuation free, but very free form present tense description of, an unnamed and never named male narrator 
in a battle with no context at all for what the battle is going on or what's happening or why. It is a very, it's also a very gendered world. It's very much about toxic masculinity and male violence. And it is pretty explicitly gendered in terms of kind of the men fighting and women having a more kind of a less actively violent role. And again, that was that was pretty intentional from the moment I sat down to write it. That it was kind of a gendered world of male violence. And it has dragons in it. I was talking dragons in it. It has three 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 invented languages. And um, I th- poss- I'm probably the only person to have an invented language or one of the first words that came up with the invented language was the word to come. Which I believe I have two different <laughs> I have two different two I have the word to come in two different fantasy languages, which I believe is a unique distinction of mine. I mean that I feel like that's relatively accurate to life because at least in my experience, if you want to try learning a new language, those are kind of the first words that you typically seek out. <laughs> well, I swear words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, it has con languages, it has poetry in con languages. It um yeah, I mean, as I say, some people are just, it's got poetry in con languages. Oh, my God, I'm never reading this book, which is which is absolutely fine. Um, yeah, um, by book three, I think you can work out, I, I'd like to think you can work out what some of the characters' names mean in two of the different con languages. I think you can work out what Marith means in two of my, two, two of my languages simultaneously. I'd like to think you could. I did mention this to someone. I mentioned this to Womblet right along the shelves, and I have this horrible feeling. I just see the poor man going mad now, trying to work out what their names mean. And sort of thirty <laughs> years later, he's a broken man. I never worked it out, Anna. You taught me I could work it out, and I never could. But I think you can. I think. I think I've given you enough clues to, to work out what they mean. Yeah, and it's interesting too because you don't, you know, explicitly. A lot of times you'll see a con language, and then you'll have italics afterwards that just translate it into English or whatever language you're reading in. And you don't necessarily do the same thing. No, I do it sometimes. But, yeah, no, sometimes I don't. And, yeah, no, I'm... Again, because kind of... I suppose I'm just horribly used to reading um, things like if you read War... If you read some translations of something like War and Peace... The characters just suddenly switched to speaking in French, some of them, which they did, of course. Russians, most of the dialogue in War and Peace between the, most of the characters will be and would have been French originally. But of course, if you don't speak French like me, you're just suddenly reading this book and suddenly then people start having a long exchange in French and you have to go to the footnotes or just never find out what it is they're saying. And um, I'm just used to that. So I did it in my own books, which is possibly a sign of just what a complete elite bellend I am. um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, these kinds of things, like like you were saying, uh, is somewhat Marmite. So you're kind of narrowing in and like the people that love your books are going to really, really love these types of decisions. Uh, But I mean, no no book is for everyone and especially no fantasy book is for everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, no, it's kind of, yeah, fans like, I mean, this sort of M. John Harrison's book, which we talked about earlier, the Iraconium series, it, yeah, it's never going to be a bestseller. It was never a bestseller. It's my books are never going to be kind of vast bestsellers. But if a small people, people number of people ever love them in the way that I love Iraconium, say, um, 
you know, or kind of I'm part of a small group of people who are just, you know, devoted to the second apocalypse novels of R. Scott Baker. And again, those novels are never going to dominate fantasy bestseller lists. They're never going to win awards. I think Baker is, Baker and Harrison are the two greatest living authors of fantasy. Baker is just sublime. I, he's one of the very few authors I would be frightened ever to meet because I don't know what I'd say to him. I have a photograph somewhere of giving him of someone giving him a signed copy of Thought of Broken Knives and that, you know, I just treasure it. But I just kind of like, you know, God, the thought of ever meeting him and talking to him and saying, oh, I love your books. Um, he'd be one of the few authors I'd just be in the water ever meet. And if two or three people ever feel like that in my, my books, that that's what I want. That's that's what I want out of my writing. But I know that that's, you know, there are different books. There are a, whole, a book that everyone, a book that no one hates is probably a book that no one's going to love. Yep, yep. That I know is I'm going to make friends of money out of my writing, and that's, that's fine. I write what I write. And, yeah, if it's not for... I, I write books for fantasy of people who love elite people who are complete elite villains that like I am basically <laughs> to be frank <laughs> maybe we'll do that I'm sorry fans um, but you know what I mean um, I hope god I've just lost all my readership or something in that <laughs> no. you know what I mean <laughs> yes yeah I, I know exactly what you mean yeah. I know exactly what you mean yes yeah. uh, yes yes and and so I guess some of those things like that set apart your books for me, uh, I know one that really sticks out is uh, a lot of my favorite moments in the books are when you uh, sometimes like hint at breaking the fourth wall and sometimes like don't even beat around the bush and like directly break the fourth wall. Uh, I like when you kind of address the reader and call them out on certain things. Uh, so that, that was really powerful to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that um, that was just a part of my writing style, I think. So, um, I mean, it's more common than you'd think. So Hilary Mantel's um, books about Thomas Cromwell do this occasionally. They suddenly have a paragraph that moves into you. So they're all he, and then suddenly you'll have paragraphs that move into you, and it's suddenly making putting you in Cromwell's perspective. And then sometimes they'll say we, and it is, you're very aware it is, the narrator and the reader being shown what Cromwell is doing at that point. And so, yeah, I'm kind of doing something similar. And also, I mean, if I'm writing kind of stuff which is quite influenced by epic poetry, which is a very performative thing, I think something like the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey and Beowulf would have been, you, know, you wouldn't be reading them originally. They, they were they are created by someone performing them to an audience. And there was probably much more audience interaction. We always have this image of this sort of bard sitting down and standing, sort of, you know, reciting the Iliad for two hours while everyone in the hall sits in absolute silence, wrapped, listening the way we listen. We would sit in an opera house. And, of course, there probably wouldn't. There probably have been people coming and going. Everyone knew the story. So that kind of audience interaction, you can kind of imagine it almost more like a pantomime in some ways. There'd have been a lot more audience interaction, I think, than we, than we have this very rarefied idea of how, oh, oh it's, you know, it's published by Penguin Classics. It must have been received in this sort of terribly rarefied net opera house sort of style and it, atmosphere, and it wasn't. 
so that it was just natural to have that kind of you are very I am very aware that this is a constructed world that there is a narrator and there's an audience but also the um yeah I mean the decisions to have because it's written in very either very close third person perspective or in Thalia's case in first person perspective it became the kind of whether that's her voice, you know, who they're, who they're talking to. So when Tobias is kind of calling the author out, calling, sorry, calling the reader out, who exactly is calling out? Is he calling out himself? Is he calling out the reader? That kind of... I have a critical voice that calls myself out in my head sometimes. So it just seemed natural that their voices would do that. And then, yeah, Thalia just was just a kind of... When she gives her big speech at Minya Book Three, I was just like, okay, she's just gonna, she's just gonna let rip, basically. You know, I've had I had some reviews of the Court of Broken Eyes, which are talking about, oh, well, you know, she's a very passive character. Why doesn't she do more? She's kind of, I mean, you know, she tells you at one point in Court of Broken Eyes, you'll think I'm a fool, but, and of course, I had various reviewers kind of saying she's such a fool. Like she told you, you know, she says in book one, you will think I'm a fool, but I'm doing this, but I I know what I'm doing. And people are like, oh, she's such a fool, she doesn't know what she's doing. So it's like book three, it's like, well, she's just gonna stand up and <laughs> you know, give her speech because it matters to me. And actually, I mean, yeah, you know, it matters to me a lot that the speeches she makes at the end of her kind of her sections at the end of the Tower of Living and Dying and at the beginning of House of Sacrifice, where she is just taking on the author, taking on the reader and saying, yeah, well, what would you do? Don't judge me. That mattered to me a lot to write those and to have her really calling out the audience, really calling out the reader. Yeah, and uh, it definitely stood out in the House of Sacrifice, like being one of the first things that hits you in the story. Um, really made, I kind of had to just like shut the book and just think about that moment for a while. Oh, gosh, well, that's, that's, that's what I wanted it to do. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted you to do, make you, make you think about it, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, now that you've completed the Empires of Dust trilogy, uh, with everything you've learned about writing that, uh, is there anything you're changing about your writing process moving forward? Uh, I think more and more I'm sort of feeling like not... Is that the bit where you feel, oh, I need to explain something. I need to justify a part of this story. So there are bits in Court of Broken Knives where I think I'm trying to justify things. You know, I'm sort of second guessing. But someone's going to say, but this person wouldn't have done that or it's not realistic and not plausible for them to have done that or it's not realistic for them to have managed to move that distance that quickly or, you know, those kind of... The bits that someone is always going to pick up, the guy is always going to pick up as some kind of this is implausible or this is unrealistic or actually, you know, this isn't how they'd have handled a sword 400 years ago. Or, you know. <laughs> and there are always bits like that because it's a story and it's made up. And more and more I'm kind of, well, actually, if you, you know, if you just write it with confidence unless it's some kind of massively, absurdly implausible thing, then if you're confident, you don't need to spend a lot of time justifying it. When you start, it's that, it's exactly like when you're, when you're kind of, when you're lying to someone and your lie just becomes so 
complicated. And if you're just brazen, it was just, and it just becomes so clear you're lying. Whereas if you're just brazen it out, generally, actually, you can get away with it more. And that, I think, more and more, you, I, a lot of the time, so advice I'm giving more and more to people who are starting writing, that kind of paranoia about what if it's not realistic? What if someone holds this up as not being not being realistic? What if someone says that this isn't particularly plausible? If you believe it and your characters believe it, then you can take the reader with you. Is that as soon as you stop feeling like I need to drop in a lengthy explanation of how this works or why this is actually realistic or why kind of, I know this isn't realistic, but I'm going to give you my justification for why kind of, yeah, okay, everyone else in, everyone else would have clearly hold a sword like this because I someone told me on Someone told me in a Facebook group once that from their experience in HEMA, you'd only ever hold a sword like this. But I'm going to explain to you at length why my character holds a sword like that, because, because, because. Yeah. If you just don't do that, it's actually going to work better. And that, I think, I'm feeling more and more, just kind of go with it. Just be confident in yourself. Just go. But no, I just kind of, I think I probably am getting better as a writer just because I'm writing more and more. I think it is just having that confidence of just doing it rather than, questioning I got quite caught up in the thing a lot of writers have is when you've written when you've had got something out there for review and obviously you're getting reviews and I've had some truly terrible reviews and that was like appalling reviews I don't review I don't read reviews anymore because you just become absolutely obsessed with kind of oh my goodness someone's going to say someone's going to one star this because someone's going to say that I don't know this because I've just written this paragraph and oh my goodness I can just imagine someone giving a negative review because and that just eats into you to the point you can't write anything yeah and I, you can only write only write for yourself as soon as you start writing for other people it's all just going to collapse and all writers when you start getting reviews you start having feeling that. And you have to you have to put it back in the box and just forget about it and just kind of carry on writing for you in the way that you were before you had material out there for review. I think that's pretty much the universal feedback that I hear from writers is uh, not reading reviews does wonders for your mental health. <laughs> yes. Now I feel really... I really kind of, it's awful for when people do read reviews, this feel really like, no, don't just don't, just don't. And then you get, you do then get people saying, well, how are you going to learn if you don't read negative reviews? But one, there's a difference between a negative review, which is just like, I hate this book and something which is a, a constructive review, but also you learn through doing writing, you learn through, Writing isn't really, I mean, who are you learning for? You can learn to, if you read lots of negative reviews, you can learn to write a book that that negative reviewer might like more. But writing is such a personal thing. And as I said before, you know, people shouldn't be, no one should try and write books to make money. Because for one thing, that's just, you're never going to make any money. If your major interest is making money, writing and writing and music and painting are the three worst things you could possibly do. Go and get a job that does not involve any creative thing because you're never going to make any money out of writing. 
the vast, the vast majority of people who have made money out of writing could probably make far more writing out money out of something else. Unless you're George, unless you're Brandon Sanderson, you were never going to make as much make as much money out of writing. Or George R. R. Martin, you know, you're never going to make as much money out of writing as you could out of doing something else that isn't writing. That's true, and but, that's um, that's what people think of when they think of writers too, right? Are these people who are making millions and millions of dollars? But you know, that's the one or two people that you've heard about, and that is a household name. Yes, and even then, I mean. I doubt very much either of them started writing. If, if someone told me that Sam, Brandon Sanderson sat down to write the Mistborn trilogy because he was like, ah, oh, this is just, you know, I've got the thing, the secret of the secret of the magic money tree. It's a book about a teenage girl who can do special magic powers involving vials of metal. So you'd be like, yeah, no, there is no writing is not, you're not trying to write a book to please it. If you're not trying to, if you're not, if you're right, not writing to absolutely please yourself, and you're only, if you're not writing a book that is for you, and it doesn't matter about anyone else, it's for you. Then it's never going to be as true to you and as good as it could be if it's if you just wrote it as just for you. It's and then if other people like it, that's obviously the most wonderful thing in the world, and it is. You know, when someone tells you they love your book, it. It's wonderful. It's right out there with someone telling you that they think your child, children are beautiful. Is a really wonderful thing to happen to you. But it's writing should never be about that. Writing should only ever writing should be the, a pleasure. It should be that if you're ever writing and you're not enjoying it, then you, or you're trying to second guess how other people would receive it and write it so other people would like it, then you probably shouldn't be writing it. Right. I mean, if it's something where I think you said earlier, like where you just like sit down and you grind it out like night after night after night and you're spending that much of your free time, I would really hope that on some level you're enjoying what you're writing. Yes. I mean, it, in, writers always have this really ambiguous relationship with writing where you regularly say, um, I think there's a Neil Gaiman thing about the hardest thing in the world the easiest thing in the world is to write a novel because you just keep typing words from once upon a time to the end. And I mean, how easy is that? But it's, you know, putting words in a, putting some words in a sent coherent sentence is somehow to someone who is a professional writer who is being paid by a publishing company to write is still, it's so difficult. It's so painful. It's, oh, you, you don't know the meaning of pain until you've been confronted with a blank page and you're trying to write <laughs> once upon a time. It's like, oh, it's torture. But somehow it is. And yet it's also intensely enjoyable. Writers will procrastinate. You know, you could I could win an Olympic gold medal in, hey, maybe I'll just go and unplug the sink, unplumb the sink, I'm sort of, sorry, un unblock the sink, or... Hey, why don't I go and wash some clothes? I know all the clothes are washed, but I should just find I should find something I need to wash because I should find some housework that needs doing, even if no housework needs doing, because that's gotta be better than doing some writing, <laughs> writing the books I love to write. But it, it is like that. But then you get into it and it's wonderful and it's it's really enjoyable. So yeah, people I always sort of make say like, oh, you should only write if you love if you love writing, but at the same time, you know, it is really painful, it is weirdly painful. I mean, I, I've always imagined it kind of like, you know, people who uh, train for a marathon or something or like really avid runners, like on a certain level, running on a day to day basis is 
not that enjoyable. Like it's painful, it's hard, it's exhausting, but like you love being a runner. So I imagine it's kind of similar to writing. Yeah, it is exactly like that. I run, I get up and run. I run past my way to work in the morning. So yeah, it's seven in the morning and it's pitch black and it's raining and I'm running and I'm running in central London. I could get the tube. And I run past the tube station. I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This is insane. But then there comes a point where I'm just like, when I'm running and I don't want to ever stop, where I just, at the one, one sort of at the same time, I'm just desperately like, my God, the finish line's in sight. Just, oh. But I don't want to stop at the same time. Like, this is, this, this is just amazing. This is the most enjoyable thing. This is wonderful. And writing is the same thing. Yeah, you just, it's just, it is exactly the same as that moment when you're looking at your gym shoes thinking, oh, my goodness. Yeah. On and, oh, God, I could just not, I could just read last week's TV page instead. <laughs> but once you're out there, suddenly, yeah, it's wonderful. Sometimes. Sometimes it's just hell and you're just like, God, what terms. I'm so glad I did that, but I really regret doing that. Yep, yep. But, yeah, it is a lot like running. It's just keeping keeping doing it. Anyone can start a novel. Absolutely anyone can start a novel. Anyone can start. Most people could probably start 10, 15 novels. It's just finishing a single novel. That's the thing. Yep. Yep. It's a lot more fun to say you have written than it is to actually write sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Well, I guess on that note, is there anything you're currently working on that you can talk about or any future story ideas you're planning to tackle soon? Yeah, no, I mean, I've not been well recently. I've um, I've recently been diagnosed as having celiac disease, which um, has been, yeah, I mean, I'm... I have Asperger's, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and now celiac as well. Um, <laughs> I've got a whole alphabet yeah. of conditions. Um, yeah, so I haven't been writing that much for because I've not been well at all. But um, I'm now on this gluten-free diet, which is just embarrassing because I kind of have to go into restaurants and say, can I see the gluten-free menu, please? Um, and it all gets, it just feels like I desperately want, I want to hand over a little card explaining, you know, my, my doctor says, my doctor says it's okay to be gluten-free. I'm not... I'm not doing this because Gwyneth Paltrow told me to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. um, um, yeah, so I'm now, I've got something in my head that I'm about to start writing. I've been working on and off with Michael R. Fletcher. The two of us are collaborating on a really weird series for Grimdark magazine, which um, is the two of us just, pushing, goading each other and how far can too far go. It's, um, we're kind of in some kind of competition for just, just how far we can we push it. It is not, it is not perhaps my most literary piece of writing, but it's just the two of us just having so much fun. Um, and just absolutely pushing ourselves into just how, how, how absurdly over the top can one piece of epic fantasy become before it just collapses under the weight of its own. It's just, it's just swear words and graphic descriptions of wounds running down a page. Um, and that's, that's just, yeah, that's just so much fun. That's just, it's, it's, I was reading a bit at work, reading it over my lunch break at work while eating some food and just started nearly choking on my lunch at one point reading one of the bits I could written, but um, that's a huge amount of fun. So yeah, I'm finished. I should be finishing that up. And that, at some point, the other, pro- other problem is me and Mike are both the two most unstructured writers in the universe. So you put us together and we're trying to write this story and neither when you're, it's all right and it being totally unstructured when it's just your own thing, but when someone else is also being totally unstructured, we're just like, so what happens next? So I don't know. 
I mean, at one point, Adrian Collins, who's edited it, was kind of, he's editing it for us. And he was kind of like, um, did either of you two read, think to read, you know, the previous instalment? <laughs> the next instalment? Uh-huh. No, why would we want to do that? Like, well, <laughs> it might help if you had some idea what happened, some memory of what happened, chaps. But um, yeah, so that's um, a somewhat chaotic process, but a lot of fun. I, I think that's probably the most unconventional way I've been sold on a story before. <laughs> it's me and Mike Fletcher. It's, it's not going to be a terribly conventional story. Well, so I guess one question I always like to close things out. I, what's something that you're just ridiculously excited about right now? It can be absolutely anything. Oh, um, actually, what I'm really, really excited about, um, well, two things. One kind of book related. I'm going to ICFA, the it's International Conference of the Fantastical and the Arts in Orlando, in Florida, in March. And I'm going to be on a panel with Stephen Erickson and Stephen Donaldson. And I just, I'm just, I, I just, I can't oh, wow. believe it. I can't believe you've been saying that. I, I am going to Florida with Steve Erickson and Stephen Donaldson. I mean, <laughs> I cannot believe I just said that sentence. I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, so that's going to be particularly in gritty, miserable, vile, rain-soaked London. I mean, that's just, the Florida bit is pretty exciting as well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be amazing. And then, but immediately before that, I am going with my daughter to a sleepover at the British Museum Egyptology Room. Oh, wow. So we get to sleep in the Egyptian Statuary Hall and the British Museum. That sounds I mean, amazing. That's <laughs> just going to be the most incredible thing ever. We get to sleep, have a sleepover at the British Museum. I just... It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just going to be so, so, so cool. Yeah. So those are the two things I'm really, really excited about. Uh, Well, uh, thanks again so much for taking the time to do this interview, Anna. It's been great to have you on the podcast. It's been great to be on the podcast. Thank you. And yeah, congratulations again on Stabby's because that's really cool. Yes, thank you. You can find Anna Smith Spark on Twitter as at Queen of Grimdark, or at our website, courtofbrokenknives.org. The House of Sacrifice is her most recent book, but you can jump into the Empires of Dust series with The Court of Broken Knives. If you like uniquely poetic prose, big and terrifying dragons, or stories told from the perspective of villains, I think you'll love these books. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyinn. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We'd love to keep improving the podcast. And you get early access to episodes and bonus content. We recently released a behind-the-scenes article about how we schedule guests for the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. We have some exciting interviews and discussions for you. That's all for this week. See you next time.